Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. I'm eager to talk about uh, disordered eating, orthorexia, um, you know, really looking at this through a functional lens, both what we can do to support our clients, how we can evaluate for it, um, our, are some of the restrictive diets we're prescribing contributing? So to that end, I have with me today, Dr. Carolyn Fisher. Let me give you her background. I think you'll see that she's ideal for us um, on this conversation. She is a licensed clinical psychologist at Eating and Behavioral Health Associates. Uh, this is an eating disorder-focused private practice in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Dr. Fisher specializes in helping individuals with binge eating, emotional eating, chronic dieting, and various medical conditions heal their relationships with food through evidence-based practices. She's passionate about helping individuals foster a mind-body connection to empower them to make individual values based choices surrounding health and eating. Dr. Fisher obtained her doctorate in clinical health psychology at the University of Cincinnati, completed her APA accredited internship at Ann Arbor VA and postdoc training at Cleveland Clinic. Prior to joining eating and behavioral health, Dr. Fisher was a staff psychologist at the Cleveland Clinic and assistant professor at Cleveland Clinic Lerner College for Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Dr. Fisher has been actively involved in research and presentations regarding the treatment of binge eating and the relationship between diabetes and disordered eating. Dr. Fisher, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you so much uh, for that introduction. I am so excited to be here and really so grateful to be having this conversation today. Um, so thank you. 
Yeah, it's an important conversation. It's timely. It's just a, it's a topic that needs to be on the minds of all clinicians. And, you know, I want to bring it to my peers in functional medicine. So let's just jump right in. Um, you know, why is it? Why is this topic uh, relevant to us in functional medicine? Yeah, um, so I think that this is um, hugely relevant here. And I want to start maybe with kind of just describing some like clinical anecdotes here um, about what I've seen and then you kind of get into how this would specifically be relevant. Um, I have time and time again seen kind of the impact of restrictive diets or dietary restraint clinically um, in individuals with disordered eating. And so and when I talk about that, there's a whole spectrum there, which we can talk about. Um, but seeing individuals who come to see me after some type of quote unquote success with their dietary program, um, and afterwards their eating behaviors, their disordered eating kind of re-emerging. And um, we need to remember that individuals might do well on a program for a period of time. It's kind of the long-term cyclical nature of eating disorders that can be problematic and that can lead someone to continue to seek services if these eating disorder symptoms aren't being kind of addressed or dealt with. And so we can kind of mask that, I think, for a period of time with, um, with a program, with a diet program. Um, but I'm often seeing them with like weight regain or weight, re weight, weight cycling. And so uh, we see that these behaviors are, are often underlying um, the interventions that we might be providing um, short term. Um, also along these lines, um, perhaps I've been working with somebody maybe for um, working on their binge eating, developing like a healthy relationship with food, working towards weight acceptance, and are perhaps told in a visit that they should try a certain diet to help with their symptoms or health goals. And in those situations that I worry that a full assessment regarding their history and their behaviors isn't always being done. Um, so these individuals with problematic eating behaviors might be put on these programs and it might actually be doing more harm when it comes to their relationship with food and potentially their health goals too. And I'll talk about that over the long term. We so, need, yeah. I just want to say, so I, 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 I think we need to evolve our toolkit in functional medicine to be able to identify who's vulnerable. So I want to circle back and talk to you about that. But it sounds to me, and I, I and you know, I want to be as clear as possible here. You're probably seeing patients who've sought out a provider, maybe in functional medicine or integrative medicine, or mm -hmm. you know, it, it, or per, perhaps they've even you know bought a book or, or used Dr. Google and maybe initiated an elimination diet or gluten and dairy-free diet is pretty classic. Is that true? So you're seeing people who are attempting to sort of do right by their health fall into this. Yes, the extremes, right? So being able to be successful with this for a period of time and mm -hmm. then falling into that other extreme of like, what happens when I'm off of whatever program it was. Um, and that's when the eating disorder symptoms or some type of disordered eating might kind of reemerge there. Right. So, right. Exactly. And, and the restriction could be the trigger. 
I would Absolutely. imagine. Yes, yeah. that is a complicated relationship, but certainly, yes, um, restricting for a period of time um, can absolutely lead to, we have some data to say that that would lead to binge eating, overeating, and then also cognitively, these all or nothing thinking patterns that can be really prevalent as well. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, off. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. So let me, I just want to zoom back a little bit and ask you about statistics on eating disorders. Um, you know, the incidence of it these days, men, women, and children, um, mm -hmm. you know, who might be vulnerable? Um, are we seeing an increase? Yeah. So um, when we think about our diagnosed eating disorders, um, we have bulimia, anorexia, binge eating, um, but obviously there's there's more to it than that. Um, and statistic-wise, um, binge eating disorder, which didn't become a specific diagnosis um, until 2015, is actually the most common eating disorder that we that we see, um, and that affects about 3.5% of women and 2% of men um, over the course of their life. Um, bulimia neurosa would affect about 1% of women and 0.1% of men, um, and anorexia 0.3% of women and 0.1% of men. Um, so definitely the most rare. Um, there's, you know, we'll get into that, but other forms of eating disorders too um, that make these stats maybe on the lower end of what we actually see when it comes to disordered eating. Um, and as for who's vulnerable, um, anyone, right? Really? So, I think that we have perhaps an image of who is vulnerable. We maybe think of young white women um, developing an eating disorder and maybe perhaps have an image of what that looks like. Um, but the reality is that it can affect all genders, um, all um, age groups. So 13% of individuals over the age of 50 have eating disorder symptoms. So it's not just younger individuals. Um, and it's all races, economics, socioeconomic statuses. Um, anyone is vulnerable. Obviously, there are certain individuals that might have more of a risk than others. A lot, a lot of that is genetic, um, but also environmental. Um, and psychological, um, but really it could be affecting um, any individual at any weight too. Wow, that's fascinating. I think that really uh, changes our classic belief or certainly thinking that I've had where, you know, we might see, well, like you said, the young white girls um, or you know, folks with an anxiety disorder or, you know, those on an addict, addiction continuum. But mm -hmm. the, the fact that anyone's vulnerable, I think, is um, is very significant. Are you seeing an increase in incidence? Yeah, so um, that's a really, that's a really important question, I think. Um, over time, we definitely have seen a rise in eating disorders worldwide, which is interesting. Um, and, uh perhaps a product of what's going on, you know, culturally, um, also recognizing eating disorders a little bit more, being able to see that um, it is more prevalent than we know, than we thought. Right. Uh, yeah, well, and, and when binge eating was actually recognized in 2015, I'm sure that that contributed, you know, just 
to the to the increase in incidents just certainly totally. yeah and then you suggested that probably the incidence is greater than the stats that you gave me um and earlier you and i were talking about orthorexia or you know you mentioned elimination diets and so forth i mean when you say that you think the incidence is greater and there are you know eating patterns that might sort of fall under an eating disorder heading but are not yet recognized would that be some of what's contributing to these greater numbers and can you speak to that or or if there's another contributor that i'm not mentioning just speak to that yes i think that um kind of the spectrum of eating disorder behaviors may not be reflected in these numbers right so that's what is important to remember that when I say that it could be larger than um, what these numbers are saying. Um, we, yeah, we have a lot of problematic disordered eating behaviors that we see that are not well captured. Um, and so that's just important to remember. Yeah. But what, what are those? What do those look like? Um, so like I've been kind of saying, uh, it is on, you can think about it on a spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. So if we have one end um, of kind of thinking about it as normal eating or more intuitive eating, um, the other end, we have our diagnosable eating disorders that I have mentioned. Um, and in the middle, we have a range of behaviors that can vary in severity and impairment, um, hence that kind of spectrum approach um, and include a lot Lot of different types of behaviors, orthorexia being one of them. So that's kind of that um, unhealthy obsession with being healthy. And we'll talk more about that hopefully. Um, but restricting food intake, trying to control our portions, calorie counting, um, really eating only certain types of foods um, or avoiding certain food groups regularly eating past the point of being full or feeling out of control with our eating, um, more chaotic eating, so going long periods without eating and then perhaps eating an uncomfortably large amount um, and doing that regularly. Skipping meals can also be a form of disordered eating, graze eating, so kind of more of that like snacking throughout the day. Okay. Dieting, so eating in a way that's kind of ignoring our body's cues. Um, and accepting a more external way of eating. Um, and I think with dieting too, and we can talk more about this element, we wanna think about what's the intention behind the diet. Um, is it to lose weight, to control our weight? Um, Cause that can be a little bit more problematic than just dieting in and of itself. Um, obviously binging or purging, um, any way that we're kind of trying to get rid of um, calories that we consume, whether it's through laxative, exercise, um, that kind of thing. Perfect. So, yeah, so these may not be the same like extent as an eating disorder, but they're definitely able to fall within that spectrum. Yes. And the reality too, is that a lot of these behaviors are normalized and reinforced. Yes, um, yes, yes. Well, and, but you know what, some of the, so it, we have to tease it's, you know, my healthy eating is your eating disorder. You know, so, I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, it's like we have to kind of tease that out. I mean, we've all grown up in a culture that promotes really bad eating habits. We've got, if you go to the grocery store, most of the food isn't particularly healthful. And I think, you know, just thinking at this, you know, now as I'm saying it out loud, I mean, we've, I think, I think we've almost, pr we've promoted 
eating disorders just from sort of the standard American diet being the standard American diet. And so transitioning to healthful eating can for some be, you know, this joyous experience of liberation, but then for others, it can be, you know, restrictive and problematic and fall in the continuum of eating disorders. And I, I imagine that can be challenging to tease out. Would you say that's true? Absolutely. Yes. Because um, there are unmeasurable factors there, right? The behaviors potentially could look the same. Um, mm -hmm. Let's say unmeasurable, but less tangible um, factors that could be playing into that. Um, how am I looking at food? Is it taking over my life? Um, am I obsessing about what I'm eating? Um, is this, be am I starting to limit my social involvement because I'm really concerned about what's going to be available food wise? And so there are kind of these other factors too that could be moving somebody further on that spectrum towards more of you know having an eating disorder um, versus I'm eating in a way that feels values consistent to me and that is fueling yes. in a way that feels good to me um, and that's what can be hard to exactly kind of tease apart. Wow, but I can see the line of questions that you're putting forward would help you obviously, you know, mm -hmm. how much is this mm -hmm. consuming your, your world? How much is it impacting you, you know, emotionally, your well-being? You know, you, you and I were chatting about GI dysfunction, GI, GI disorders and, and, and eating disorders and, and that, you know, just being, those two being very intimately connected. Can you speak about it? Yes, thank you for this question. I think this is really important to kind of consider and understand, especially um, well, in both of our worlds, but definitely in the world of functional medicine. Um, so we want to remember first off that these GI symptoms are incredibly common across the eating disorder spectrum. So up to 96% of individuals with eating disorders can experience some type of GI symptoms. Um, so a lot of these individuals may be landing in your office, right? Sure. Um, and so Remembering that this relationship is bi-directional, so um, the GI symptoms can kind of contribute to an eating disorder by having this hypersensitivity to our physical or gut symptoms um, and potentially eating in a more restrictive way to help to manage our symptoms. Um, we can develop a fear of eating and over time this contributing to avoidance of certain foods, aversions, and that can kind of set a stage for the development of an eating disorder. And um, on the other side too, eating disorders um, can cause GI symptoms. So um, yeah, the behaviors and the symptoms themselves can lead to these symptoms. Um, before getting into kind of the details about that, um, I wanted to just mention what GI symptoms might be seeing in individuals mm -hmm. with an eating disorder. Um, so a lot of this um, pertains to disorders of the, the gut-brain interaction. And so we might be seeing heartburn, constipation, diarrhea, bloating, abdominal distension, nausea, feeling really full after meals, um, feeling really full quickly, that stomach emptying, um, and um, intestinal permeability, and then kind of general IBS. And so all of these symptoms can make eating really uncomfortable physically and 
remembering the eating might already be very mentally uncomfortable for somebody and exacerbate these fears of fatness with um, bloating or abdominal distension. And so this can further contribute to food avoidance or food aversions. We see this in practice just all the time. Um, and we tend to come at it. Well, certainly I'm more comfortable swimming in the pond of addressing the gastrointestinal issues. You know, I'm just more versed in that. Um, yeah. Um, no, I think that's so important, right? That we are able to address this in also a way that's sensitive to an individual's symptom, their eating disorder history. Um, as well, so that we're doing it in a way that is, yeah, very sensitive to the individual. Um, and oh. kind of, sorry, go ahead. Well, okay, I just want to, I'll put this in there so you can continue with what you're saying and then, you know, maybe speak to this. We need, we've been dialoguing about this quite a bit in functional medicine and in my practice uh, in particular, where we've got um, a number, we have a strong nutrition program here and it's a, um, there are, there are about, it's a very collaborative model here with physicians, naturopathic physicians and nutritionists. And so this has been a topic of conversation. Uh, and we need some tools in this setting. We're not, we don't have a psychologist or a psychiatrist on board. And I do, I think A, we need to do some co-management and figure out who in our community uh, we should, we can co-manage with. But B, you know, what are some basic tools for us to um, tease out who's presenting with an eating disorder, um, who's vulnerable, uh, so if you can kind of speak to that uh, with what you were saying, uh, that would be great. Um, so here is where um, I think it's important to be asking and assessing, right? Um, so making sure that uh, this is something that we're incorporating in our visits is um, some type of assessment of an eating disorder history so that we, we know. Um, the eating disorder examination, um, the EDQ7 um, item, is a well-validated -valid measure to screen for eating disorders. Um, and that can be a quick way to assess different um, kind of components of the eating disorder. So it's gonna assess kind of cognitive behavioral components. It has three scales, the dietary restraint, um, shape, weight over-evaluation and body dissatisfaction. And that's important because it's those elements, right? Kind of this uh, really uh, being preoccupied with our body shape and weight, this fear of gaining weight, um, dietary restraint that can contribute to the development of an eating disorder. And so we want to potentially use this assessment to one, be able to identify people with maybe an active eating disorder, but also potentially use these scales to um, flag individuals that might be coming at this with um, significant body image disturbance or significant overvaluation of shape or weight, uh, because that's those specific components can be problematic when it comes to dieting um, or engaging in one of these programs. Um, dieting in and of itself isn't going to like cause an eating disorder for any, every patient. It's some of these um, more cognitive factors that we may not be measuring with all of our patients that might help us to identify some individuals that are at risk. And then we would consider modifying how we might start with them and check in with them. So the 
you it's the edeq the seven item edeq mm -hmm. folks will we will link to this on our show notes i know um, at a recent IFM conference, we were actively dialoguing in the chat when Walter Longo was presenting on the fasting mimicking diet. We were talking quite a bit about, you know, how we're evaluating and what tools we're using in practice. A lot of us are prescribing the fasting mimicking diet uh, routinely or variations of this or time restricted eating, um, you know, and of course we're prescribing all sorts of therapeutic dietary interventions with our patients. It's one of the most important tools that we have in functional uh -huh. medicine. Um, but we absolutely need to be thinking about this component. This needs to be just front and center in our minds. I think um, perhaps more now than ever as our, you know, as this sort of era of time, rest restrictive eating is sort of, is, is a tool that has some nice research behind it and we're using it a little more in, 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 in practice. But, you know, I think that that's also increasing the vulnerability in functional medicine of seeing of precipitating eating disorders or um, allowing for the continuation of, of eating disorders in those who present to us with one and who we haven't adequately evaluated. So let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. We are all searching for the magic longevity supplement, but many of us are on the wrong path. Health and longevity begins within the trillions of cells in our bodies, which is why body biophospholipid complex is formulated with the integral phospholipids for cellular health. BodyBio PC is a liposomal formula providing the building blocks for better cellular functioning, neurotransmission, and mitochondrial support for better cognition, memory, and mental focus. Improving phospholipid levels will ensure our cells stay healthy as we age. And for New Frontiers listeners, head over to bodybio.com and use the code NF25 for 25% off all BodyBio supplements. Now let's get back to this month's episode. Any comments on that? Uh, yeah, so um, I think that um, you're right. We have to be kind of careful about uh, the restrictive component, um, but also recognizing to your point that these interventions are evidence-based and they are effective and that you're you know, using them for a reason. And so yes, being able to really identify individuals that might be more at risk um, because our literature is also mixed. Um, restriction in and of itself is not causing an eating disorder, right? There's other factors that might be going on there that could be impacting the development of an eating disorder. So it's not saying that it's all bad, right? It is being able to identify who's more at risk. Um, and there's also the more cognitive element of dietary restraint of trying to control our diet that's also important. So kind of separate but related to restricting our eating, that idea of controlling our eating or wanting to control our eating can also be problematic. Um, and maybe over the short term, like I mentioned before, maybe it's not over the short term, but what happens long term um, once I'm off of this diet? Am I kind of going back to some of these disordered eating behaviors? Um, so it's definitely important to, to take an individualized approach with all of this, right? It's not like this is bad or this is good, but being able to really um, assess for this with the individual and make an individualized plan. Right, right. Yeah, it, uh, that makes sense. I, you know, I, a, a, a good friend of mine fasts, he does a water fast every Thursday. And um, 
for you know that for that isn't that's not something that I would be able to do. You know, I can do very mild, you know, time restricted eating, um, but doing that would be really triggering for me. And but however, you know, he's 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 it is it is absolutely within bounds for him, mm-hmm. and it's he's been able to adopt it, and it hasn't. Um, precipitated any abnormal eating patterns, at least in my observation. And, you know, and many of our patients are able to do this, I think, in a, in a healthful way. But I do think you're absolutely right that we need to be looking for it. And the incidence is greater um, than I think what we're recognizing, just, you know, referring back to your initial um, comment on the statistics. So anything else on what we need to understand when working with individuals with disordered eating or histories in functional medicine specifically? Anything? Um, I think that um, kind of having a understanding of perhaps like what they've been through from an eating disorder perspective, um, that they might kind of be coming in to this with a rigidity um, with their food and their eating um, and uh, that they might have rules surrounding food eating. And so just being careful what we're reinforcing. Um, But otherwise I think that um, we kind of covered a lot of those important pieces there. What does an eating disorder treatment typically look like? Um, So this is going to consist of a multidisciplinary team, um, typically. So having a psychiatrist, um, a mental health provider, a nutritionist, a physician, um, kind of working together with the individual to make sure when they're medically stable, um, and then also be stabilizing their eating um, and working towards acknowledging and responding to internal cues. So that's an important piece too, that these individuals might have done some significant work to tune in with their bodies, to respond to their internal cues and having an external structure rules surrounding their eating um, might go against what they've been kind of working on. Um, It comes down to breaking down some of their food rules um, and targeting factors that contribute to eating disorder behaviors, such as body image disturbance, stress, anxiety, perfectionism, self-esteem, and thinking too about how nutrition interventions might have looked different than those within functional medicine. So kind of being mindful and aware of the pillars on which an individual's recovery might have been built. Yeah. Can you speak to that? I mean, I, I, I think the classic uh, perhaps healthful diet isn't necessarily one that we're going to be prescribing in functional medicine. Like how Yeah, so um, individuals are working to increase variety, so to allow all foods um, to um, eat consistently, to eat regularly, to listen to and respond to their internal cues, um, to kind of develop a sense of trust with themselves surrounding eating, um, and that requires listening to those internal cues. Um, kind of removing food fears. So that kind of gets into like, what's the language that we're using surrounding the the food Um, and potentially like working towards intuitive eating with all of this. That's so interesting. Um, How, so we we touched on orthorexia a little bit at the Mm -hmm. beginning and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe what that is. I know it's, I think it's 
there's some there are some publications using mm -hmm. this term and I think it's sort of moving into recognition more um so give me a definition and and how to be aware of it in in our world in functional medicine sure um so like you're mentioning, uh, it's not an official diagnosis, but some criteria have been proposed for kind of diagnosing this. Um, and I'm kind of referencing Sina and colleagues from 2019, and they came up with some evidence-based criteria of having an obsessional or pathological preoccupation with healthy nutrition, having emotional consequences, so distress or anxiety associated with not adhering to their self-imposed nutritional rules, and having psychosocial impairment in areas of their life, um, as well as malnutrition or weight loss. And so, um, like we kind of talked about before, this can be uh, a gray area right? Mm -hmm. And hard to kind of to tease apart. And so that's where um, really asking about um, how anxiety provoking is your eating to you? Are you thinking about food a lot? Um, is it taking a toll on other areas in your life that you value? Um, and there are some different tools that um, you can use to assess orthorexia. If you're looking at that specifically, there's the orthorexia self-test and the Ordo 15. Um, that are some tools and I can send those to you too, um, to help to assess for this in a, um, evidence-based way. Perfect. Yeah, that would be great. And again, folks, we'll put that in the, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, and I think we talked about this with the, the EDEQ, but you know, what we this, so this needs to be collaborative. And I think, I think because it's becoming, uh, more front and center in the world of functional medicine, I think we will find these partnerships and build them. And I know a lot of, you know, a lot of my colleagues already have, but we don't have a lot of time um, to, mm -hmm. nor, nor the expertise to be able to address an eating disorder. And you meant, so the seven item EDEQ would be a, a good tool. Um, anything else i mean other bar certainly we ask patients in our intake questionnaire you know about obvious histories for eating disorders but i i would imagine that would miss a lot if if, if somebody didn't have a history of bulimia or anorexia or something like that um mm -hmm. so the yeah go ahead so um, kind of wondering if there are some additional ways to be assessing for this yeah yeah, I mean, what would you recommend leaning on the the EDEQ, which seems pretty fabulous, and that it's 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 brief and probably you know useful in our in our setting, um, and anything beyond that? Yeah, so um, there's there are a lot of measures for um, assessing eating disorders. Um, I was trying to think of one that had a lower number of items uh, for you guys because some of them can be like uh, around 30 items. Um, and so this one does have really good psychometric properties and is well validated and I think would be a great tool in addition to the interview. Um, so it could be, I don't know if you guys do any paperwork beforehand, but it could be as simple as just asking on a piece of paper um, I think you might get more information that way than in, in, in an interview, um, do you have an eating disorder or history of an eating disorder? So just asking that question and it might feel more anonymous for somebody to write it on the paper rather than bring it up in the appointment. 
Yeah, and we do do those broad stroke questions, history of eating disorder, but I, I, I'm thinking that we will miss those who are vulnerable with those broad stroke questions. So perhaps including, I, I know that we've been discussing here in our practice, including a more sensitive um, questionnaire with our intake materials. Yeah. And I think this would be a good one that is quick too. Good. Okay. Um, now, if, how do we talk about uh, weight? I mean, clearly it's a big issue for a lot of our, a lot of the folks coming to us. It's an area of interest. You know, people come to us wanting to lose weight. I mean, it's, you know, if I were to do a chart analysis, you know, the probably the majority of the patients that come to practice have, 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 have considered themselves to have a weight issue, whether that's, you know, objectively true or not is, isn't um, always the case, but, but what, how do you speak about weight and, and in a sensitive, you know, and useful way? Mm -hmm. um, no, that's a really important question. And I'm, I'm glad you're asking um, because it can uh, go awry in, in many settings. Um, I think starting with kind of what you're saying is um, that our the individuals we're seeing, our patients, they are thinking about weight, even if it may not be on your radar as something that is kind of going on with them or um, contributing to their um, their challenges. It's probably on their mind, and so recognizing that and that it, when we start talking about food and manipulating our eating, um, that weight might be popping into somebody's mind. Like, sh should I be losing weight? Should I expect to lose weight? Um, maybe that's their primary goal. And so kind of backing up and recognizing that weight bias is prevalent and it's unfortunately kind of a socially acceptable and reinforced prejudice that we have. Um, and so it can make it really difficult to approach this topic. Um, and individuals that have negative stereotypes about individuals at higher weights often fail to recognize their bias. Um, and they might believe that it's somebody's own fault and that they should kind of should be held accountable. Um, so just remembering that individuals at higher weights are vulnerable to having experienced stigma in healthcare settings. So even if they're not getting it in your practice, um, they might've had it before. And we also might be unintentionally communicating subtle forms of bias. And, this, and what, what would that look like? Can you give me an example? Yeah, yeah. So that could be um, not having your office well set up for individuals at higher weights. So maybe there's not, um, a chair that feels comfortable for them, or the blood pressure cuff doesn't fit, um, or a scale that um, isn't going to have um, allow for that weight capacity. Um, and so making sure that our office is set up, even if we have the best intentions, that's a subtle form of weight bias that um, is going to affect an individual and potentially make them uncomfortable. Um, and so, also, kind of when working with these patients, we want to first um, recognize and open up to any of our own biases. Um, so kind of do that self-exploration. And when working with these individuals, um, acknowledge that 
the etiology of obesity is complicated and that there are factors that can contribute to our weight outside of our own actions or our behaviors. A lot of individuals have internalized that weight bias and feel like this is my fault. Um, I've caused yeah. this. And so to have a, a provider that isn't reinforcing that can be really healing and convey some empathy and understanding. Um, yeah. You're going to say something? Well, I'm just thinking, of, I'm just going back to our, you know, the gut brain sort of mm -hmm. metabolic, you know, access. I mean, and, and, our, and our just, you know, more and more data I'm sure you're familiar with is coming, coming out on the microbiome, really influencing mm -hmm. um, body size, body weight. And, mm -hmm. but we don't, we're, we don't have a whole lot of tools yet, but I, I think the evidence is really pointing to there being a, a, a much deeper uh, and challenging um, issue to confront in, in some obese individuals. Comments on that? Yes. Um, so that's uh, a really important factor to be conveying to our patients to say like, hey, I understand there's a lot going on biologically that's going to make it really hard for you to not just lose weight, to, but to maintain a weight loss. Um, that our biology, our microbiome, our genetics, our kind of set point might be working against us at times based on our histories, our eating histories, our, our weight histories, our genetics. Um, and so I think that that can be potentially um, kind of validating for somebody that has been working really hard to try to lose weight um, and not having been as successful as they would have liked to be. So kind of feeling heard and understood in that way, I think is, is huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just brings so many different questions to mind. Um, you know, I'm just, just going, and it, you know, and again, going back to the gut, I mean, we certainly do it's an area that we start our focus on and um, we do, you know, work hard at changing the microbiome and, and improving uh -huh. intestinal permeability and so forth. And we can, we can absolutely see people lose weight um, fabulously well, um, but not always, you know, we're not always successful. And um, from that vantage point, we need to just support them uh, in being as healthy as they can be um, regardless of their of their body size. Comments on that? Absolutely. No, I think that's exactly right. And um, kind of working with um, offering all the tools that you're able to offer, right? You have this wonderful toolbox of evidence-based treatments to help individuals. Um, and I think, I think a lot of it can come back to also just kind of stabilizing an individual's eating and kind of learning what food they're going to help to promote my microbiome and kind of, um, or to heal, to create a healthy microbiome. And so yes. um, you guys are able to offer so much of that. Um, and that's not always going to be a cure for somebody's weight. And so we need to think about how we're viewing weight. And are we looking at it as a problem that needs to be solved? Um, or can we work towards kind of embracing this idea of health at every size that I um, am taking positive steps to kind of live a life that feels meaningful, um, healthy and engaging to me. And I can do that at any size. Right. I think it's important. And I think it's a bit of a, it's some, it, it, it will entail some movement 
in, I think, in functional medicine, um, where, you know, we want, we're looking at um, optimal health, you know, lower BMIs, etc. Just again, in, in, in keeping with the science. And yet we need to be extremely sensitive to the fact that some individuals, that's not appropriate. That will in fact trigger um, disordered eating. And so we need to really meet them where we're at, where they're at. I mean, and, we, and we put a lot of time and attention in that meeting individuals where they're at um, in functional medicine. So I think that we, I think we can walk this walk and walk this balance. Mm -hmm. It just requires some flexibility, right? And and maybe a a little bit of a paradigm shift where I'm not looking at that BMI as that primary outcome of interest for all individuals, but kind of taking this individual's health um, into account and at times perhaps separating their health from their BMI or their weight. There's, you know, I think of the harm reduction model, which, you know, grew out of, um, Actually, I think it was started, I th- think it might have been started here in Connecticut where they were doing needle exchanges with, with heroin addicts. Um, so they weren't attempting to, you know, cure the addiction as much as just support them in reducing, you know, the incidence of, of, of hepatitis, you know, and HIV and so forth. And that, you know, and not, I'm, I'm thinking about patients that I've had with some degree of disordered eating, you know, requiring say a gluten elimination diet or a dairy elimination. And if that's pushed too aggressively, um, we can see a flare in the disordered eating. And so there's something about doing the best you can with this. Um, can you speak to that? And I'm sure you've worked with this in your practice. Um, I think it is, you know, as cliche as it might sound, it is all about the balance, right? Um, And recognizing that um, it may not always be appropriate to be um, kind of putting somebody on a specific plan to eliminate food Um, and that that might help with their symptoms, right? If we kind of have them eliminate gluten, perhaps they're getting a relief in whatever their symptom is, or maybe they're losing weight if that's kind of their goal. Um, But what are we doing long-term? Like, are we promoting um, long-term gut health, long-term kind of weight management? Um, And kind of what you're speaking to is how sometimes these eliminations or reductions can cause um, problems behaviorally. And so I would say like from my perspective, um, healing from disordered eating should come first, right? And we wanna be careful about not doing anything that's going to kind of be harmful to their overarching goals and eating disorder treatment even if it does provide this short-term relief. And so it is being able to look at this big picture mm-hmm. um, and to recognize that, yeah, I could help with their symptoms right, right now, um, but is that really what's gonna help this individual long-term? It's such a important point. And I, I think sort of a good point for us to, to wrap up. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely, it's a, it's a balance. I can see that it requires a team approach. I agree with you that the disordered eating has to be addressed first or 
likely we will continue to fail. Maybe we'll see fabulous short-term outcome as you as you speak to, but but long-term they continue in the cycle of disordered eating. I I uh, think that's an important point to make. Uh, Dr. Fisher, I just want to thank you again for for joining me on New Frontiers today, uh, just in bringing some important um, light and attention to an area that really deserves um, more attention than it's been getting recently. Well, it is my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation and your openness to having this conversation. So thank you for having me. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making new frontiers in functional medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, these kind of comments will promote new frontiers in functional medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.